When you all came in this morning, you received a handout. It has verses 46 to 55 we just read. Uh, That's called the Magnificat. It's Mary's song. It's a response to what we just read, the annunciation that this woman, this 15-year-old girl, will bring forth the Messiah, the one who will you know, take sin away from not only Israel but from the world. And think about this. Mary is the first one ever to hear the gospel. Now, in Nazareth, the angel comes and says, you know, you will call his name Jesus. She's the first one that ever hears that name. So this is a remarkable woman. It's a remarkable song. And we're going to look at it. And what I need you to uh, understand is, to understand the Christmas story, we have to scrub some things away. We have to get rid of some of, you know, the felt board things we learned in Sunday school, some of the some of the things, the antiseptic things we've delivered in tabletop books and all, and get really into the heart of what happened here. And we look at this and we see the idea, and this is the most powerful idea that's ever come to the human race, that God would step out of eternity and become a human being. Great is the mystery of godliness that he would take on human flesh. Seems so common to us now, but Mary has no idea that God's going to do this. You know, there was the desire of nations. There was this idea of a Messiah coming, but no one knew how it would happen. So this is all fresh to Mary. And we have to be fresh to us this morning so we can understand it. Now, here's what's remarkable. Mary hears this, and then she visits Elizabeth, and she just bursts forth in praise, and she sings this song, and it's wonderful and beautiful. And if you think about it, this one event, the Incarnation, not only produced Mary's song, but next week we're going to look at Zechariah's song, and then we're going to look at Simeon's song. We're going to look at the host of heaven. And in two chapters, we have all these people singing songs, and not only these songs, but it's produced thousands of songs through the generations that we call Christmas songs, and there's no event in recorded history that has more songs than the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Men such as Bach, Handel, Luther, and Bieber have all put their hands to proclaiming this wonderful event. Now, I know a lot of you love Christmas music, I do too. And I'm not a legalist, so I like the spiritual songs. I even like the regular songs, the nostalgic songs. I love White Christmas. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. It's all cool with me, okay? But there's nothing like being in a mall, and there's nothing like being in a restaurant and hearing fall on your knees, hear the angels' voices. This is the night Christ was born. And I don't know what you all think about Christmas, and I think Christians go through seasons. You know, we have a season where we think it's a pagan holiday and we want to get rid of it. And then we have seasons where we embrace it. I'm in that season. I want to embrace it because, you know, I walk into stores and I see at checkouts, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Newsweek, all talking about Jesus, Mary, about Christmas. And I hear these songs and I understand that it's one time a year where people are open to this kind of thing. So I hope you're going to invite people to Christmas Eve. I hope you're going to be bold in your faith because Mary was bold here as she breaks out into majestic praise as she sings this song where she magnifies the Lord. Now, before we unpack the song, why does she sing? Many of you probably never even realized it was a song. There comes a time in life where, where words are not enough. That's why in language we have exclamation points and questions. You know, the Jews have parallelism in the Hebrew scriptures. We have to set things apart that are more joyful. And God gave us this gift of singing. Every culture has it no matter how remote. We learn from an early age God has given us an instrument called the human voice. And when we're joyful, we sing. Now, the sad thing is in our day, singing has become a form of entertainment. We listen to it more than we sing. Now, the beauty of church is we sing every week, or at least some of us do. 
as I observe. But anyway, um, we watch it. We go to concerts. For most of history, songs were sung about things that were vital to human beings and to communities at large. The closest thing we have today might be a college fight song, a national anthem. Uh, if you go to a sporting event, there's some of these songs we sing when our team's ahead. But, but you've all had that experience, right, where you receive good news. And by the way, Mary's the first one to receive the gospel good news. You know, maybe you found out you got the job you always wanted. You made the team. Um, you know, the, the girl you're engaged to said, yes, I'll marry you. You know, there's these few things in life where you get up and you run around the block, you play a little air guitar, yes, and you just have to sing because words aren't enough. Studies suggest that choral singing, what we just did now, has tremendous positive effect on our health, lowers blood pressure, lowers stress, uh, increases our immune system. God knew all this. And right in the Old Testament, right in the middle, he put a song book. It's called the Book of Psalms. And it's rich and it's wonderful. And, and a lot of the subtitles, you know, set it to music. And the Bible says everything that has breath should praise the Lord. And we will always praise the Lord, not only here on earth, but Revelation says we're going to stand around his throne. I hope I get a better voice there. And we're going to sing and we're going to exalt him and cast our crowns down. The Bible even says the trees of the earth will sing and clap their hands. And they will magnify the Lord. Now, Mary's not the first to do this. There was another Miriam, Miriam in the Old Testament, Moses' sister. Remember what she did when they had come through the deliverance of the Red Sea? Exodus 15, Moses stands up, and we need to remember this as Christians because we don't take time to celebrate the good things God has done enough. You know, we're always forward-looking. We're always on to the next thing on our list. We're always worrying about the next thing. Uh, we don't take enough time to say, God, you have done great things right here. Praise God for all you've already done. And Moses gets up and he sings the song of Moses. And it was probably like a Ken Graves song, like a 4-4 march, like a man song, right? And then Miriam gets up and just kills the fundamentalist for all time. She gets a tambourine out and gets the girls dancing and talks about the horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. Because there are times when words aren't enough. And God has given us this beautiful thing called singing and dancing and it's joyful and we don't do it enough but for all the songs that have ever been sung what you have in your hands might be the most profound and important song in all of human history mary begins by saying my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit has rejoiced in god my savior think about what mary's saying she has this wonderful pronouncement that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, that Israel's going to be redeemed, that salvation's going to come to the world. And, and she doesn't do what we would do, right? She doesn't run back to Nazareth and say, I found the secret. I find, you know, I've read the latest thing, I've heard the latest thing. If I put this into practice, I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. No. From the depths of her being, she breaks out in praise and says, my soul does magnify the Lord. To magnify something means to exalt it to its proper place, to venerate it, to meditate on it, to be the preoccupation of your mind and your life. And we live in a world today where people are magnifying a lot of things. They're magnifying money. Listen to people talk. They talk about interest rates, the stock market, Wall Street, the next biggest deal. People, people magnify success, brand names, bigger, bigger barns. Uh, people magnify sports, entertainment. The list goes on and on. You know what the Bible calls all those lesser things? Idolatry. 
And it calls it idolatry for a reason because, because when we have lesser things than we magnify, it shrinks our soul. The word soul here is so important. It's the deepest part of me. I look at Mary's song here and I think of singing and I think of worship, right? This thing we do every Sunday. And nowhere in the Bible does it tell us how to do it. It just says everything that has breath, praise the Lord. You could pick any style. Churches sing hymns, some sing contemporary songs. Some churches have no drums. Some churches have organs. Uh, It's been done many different ways. But we live in a time where there's almost like these worship wars. If you read magazines or critiques, uh, people will look at what we do, contemporary music, and and we do hymns, and they'll say, well, those are 7-Eleven songs. You ever hear that? Seven words repeated 11 times. And they'll say it's so filled of me and I, there's no theology in it. Look at Mary's song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and rejoice to God, my Savior. She starts off with me, but then there's a whole lot of he. He has done great things. He is mighty. It goes on and on. He's shown his strength. He's exalted the lowly, sent away the rich. The beautiful thing about hymns is they taught us about the majesty of God. They were full of theology when people had no Bibles. The beauty of contemporary songs, which, by the way, contemporary music began in Calvary Chapel. I don't know if you all know that. Sometimes people will come here and they'll come up to me saying, well, we see great things going on in your church, and we want to find out the secret, and we know what it is now. You do contemporary music. And I'm like, no, contemporary music started here. That's why we do it. Chuck Smith pastoring the first Calvary Chapel, wore a suit and tie on Sunday morning, and they sang hymns. But hippies were getting saved during the Jesus movement. They were coming in in bare feet, and they would sit there with their notepads out, and as Chuck preached through the King James Version, they would literally write songs. And they would show him those songs, and he would let them sing them in the night service, and they became our first contemporary Christian songs. And if you look at a song like, As the deer panteth after the water, so my soul longeth after thee, go back and read those lyrics. They moved from regular English to King James English because these hippies that were strung out on drugs getting delivered had no idea. They had never heard of Elizabethan English or King James. And it was so organic and it was so real and authentic. And a lot of those guys would record those songs and they'd drive up and down the coast of California selling them out of the back of their cars and the rest is history. So I think there's a beauty in the hymns, the majesty of God. I think there's a beauty in contemporary songs where we learn that God is a personal God. The idea is we were meant to magnify something. And Mary here, and I don't know if it's contemporary, I don't know if it's hymns, you know, she says, my soul does magnify the Lord. Now, I have to take a second or two to talk about the soul. Because we live in a self-absorbed culture. It's not about your soul in America, it's about yourself. We have self-improvement, self-help, self-esteem. We have diets and workout plans. We're told that it's all about you. You're the customer. The customer's never always right. So life revolves around you. Look at our magazines. For some of you older folks in here, right, you probably got Life magazine. And then it changed to People. And then to Us. And now we're left with Self. There's actually a magazine called Self. And the Self is different than the Soul. The soul is what integrates your entire being. Spirit, soul, body, mind, will, emotions, the heart. The soul is the center of all these things. And the soul is not self-sufficient. The soul needs to be vertical. It needs to be connected to something else. It was meant to magnify God. Dallas Willard said, if your soul is healthy, 
no external circumstance could ever destroy your life. That's why Corey Ten Broom can endure Ravensbrook Prison during the Holocaust because her soul was healthy. Or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or Huss or some of the great martyrs of the faith. They had healthy souls. Contrastly, Willard said, if your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstance can redeem your life. In America, we have large bodies and very little souls. We put so much emphasis on the outward. So before we look at the rest of the song, here's a question. What is the state of your soul? What are you magnifying today? Is the Lord the center of your thinking? Is he the center of all that you do? Now, I don't want to be a legalist again here. You know, I think about the Lord all through the day. Probably today at 4.30, I'll be thinking Eagle Seahawks like the rest of you. You know, so I'm not saying that there's not other things. I'm saying, what are you magnifying? And what's the state of your soul? The state of Mary's soul is to break out and rejoice. And this is what she rejoices over. Look at verse 47. My soul has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold... And this is, this is beyond amazing. Henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. Now Luke's writing this. Luke relied on Mary's story heavily in the early chapters here. Luke's one of the greatest historians. Even secular people tell you he's one of the greatest historians of all time. He's relying on Mary's data. And she's saying, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. And if I'm Luke, I'm saying, well, Mary, how about the next 50 years they might call you blessed? But all generations... I mean, certainly the Caesars will be remembered, the Herods. And guess what? Mary was right. When I look at these two verses, I see some things Protestants can learn from Catholics, some things Catholics can learn from Protestants. Here's a picture of Life magazine on the newsstands today. The cover is Mary, blessed art thou among women. And that's the handmaiden of the Lord. She's very plain, very humble. The back cover is kind of the opposite. She's standing there with a crown, the queen of heaven, and so forth. So there's polarized views about Mary. But, but what can we Protestants learn from Catholics? Well, Catholics have an exalted view of Mary, as we should. She is blessed among women. Um, I know a lot of you are ex-Catholics. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. Some of you might still be Catholic. So as Catholics, you know, we lived in what was called a parish. It's a Greek word that means around the corner, and that's where our church was, by the way. The idea of driving to church, I don't even know if our church had a parking lot. And we were a mega church as a Catholic church. I think we had seven services holding like 500 people on Sunday. I mean, we, we were a big, big Catholic church. And we went there five days a week for school. Sunday was church. We were always there. Life revolved around that. We didn't know anything else. Our churches were named after saints. So I went to St. Cecilia. There's a St. Monica, St. John. I mean, it goes on and on. Some of you belong to a parish called BVM. You know what that stands for? Blessed Virgin Mary, right? All generations shall call her blessed. We said the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, but we had another prayer called the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women, right out of Luke chapter 1. The only thing is that's not how we said it. We said it like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women. You all remember that, right? It's like we got extra credit for saying it faster. This is a fulfilled prophecy. Luke is writing in 50 AD. 2,000 years later, she's still on the cover of Life magazine. She's still regarded as blessed. 
Caesar Augustus and Herod are only remembered because they're in the Luke Christmas story that revolves around Mary and Jesus. How ironic is that? She was blessed, literally, if you look at the grammar, out from among women. In other words, she's not exalted to a, a place that's too lofty. Just no other woman was as remarkable about Mary. And let's, let's talk about what made her remarkable. First of all, her humility, the handmaiden of the Lord. But more than anything, I think it was her submission. You know, Gabriel comes and says, you know, you're going you're gonna to have a son, and his name's going to be called Jesus, and he'll save the world from its sins. She says, how can this be? I don't know a man. Now, she's not doubting like Zechariah. We'll look at him next week. She's saying, I just don't understand the process. And the, whole, and the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And this holy thing that will be born will be called the Son of God, that Genesis, the seed of the woman, the prophecy is being fulfilled. And the angel says, for nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary might say the most poignant thing of the day. Verse 38, she says, behold, let it be done to me according to your word. And how many of us shrink back from that at far lesser things? I mean, I'm slayed by this 15-year-old girl this morning. Because there's things God has called me to do and things that are very plain in Scripture where I wrestle with God and I don't do it according to his will. I think some of the life decisions you all make. God, I know I'm not supposed to marry an unbeliever or date them, and I know that's in your word, but I can't do it according to your word because I've got a better way. And you could overlay that on a thousand things. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a second, Mary had it made. She's going to be the the mother of God. There's going to be statues of her around the world. She's going to be a celebrity for all time. She doesn't know any of this. She she never read Luke 1 and 2, okay? Can I tell you what she's signing up for? She's signing up to be a single mom because Joseph's going to put her away secretly. Had Rome not taken away from Israel the right to the death penalty, she could have been stoned. She's already poor. We know that because when they go to the temple for Jesus' dedication, they offer two pigeons, which is the lowest offering possible. Her status, already low, will be even lower as an unmarried pregnant woman. Simeon's going to tell her a sword's going to pierce her own soul. And yet she says, let it be done according to your word. I don't think Mary sang this song one time. I think as Jesus sat in her lap, she sang it over and over again. And and what a brilliant woman. You look at this. Go back and check all the cross references. The Psalms are here. Hannah's songs here. Some of the words of the prophets are here. This girl never had a Bible. When she would go to synagogue, she, she would have limited availability of the Torah. Many scholars believe she memorized the Psalms. She memorized parts of the Old Testament. She has rich theology, and I believe she set the course for Jesus' life. And if you think that's blasphemy, think about this. Jesus was all of man, and he was all of God. When he resisted Satan in Luke chapter 4, in his temptation in the wilderness, he defeated him as a man, not as a God. The Bible says he he grew in stature, in wisdom, in fear of God and men, and I think he learned a lot from Mary. I think he learned so much that when Satan presented him the kingdoms of the world, he said, no, you only bow down and worship God. And I think he thought of his mother in Gethsemane when he said, Lord, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His mother instilled that in him. Every mother in this room has a higher calling than you've ever imagined. And don't take it lightly. 15 years old, 
She submits to the Lord. And she fulfills her calling flawlessly. We can learn from Catholics by understanding she is blessed among women and all generations shall call her blessed and we should. Now, what can Catholics learn from Protestants? Well, the first thing they can learn in verse 48 or verse 47, she said, I rejoice in God my Savior. Mary was not sinless. She was not perfect. Sinless, perfect people don't need saviors. Whenever I meet Catholics, I always throw a few questions out at them because they don't know the answers. It's kind of fun to play around with them. Um, One's the Immaculate Conception. Ask a Catholic, what's the Immaculate Conception? Most of the time they'll say, well, Jesus was born without sin. No, the Catholic doctrine is that Mary was born without sin because the idea is if Jesus was sinless, she had to be sinless. No, the Bible says the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you. This is a holy thing. It's a seed of the woman. Mary was not sinless. Why would she say she needs a Savior? Later, in Acts chapter 1, she's in the upper room. She's numbered with the 120. She's praying for the Holy Spirit to fall upon her. Romans, Isaiah, uh, goes to great lengths to make it clear that we all, like sheep, have done what? Gone astray. Everyone to his own way. We're all born with the sin of Adam. Mary was no different. Mary needed a Savior. She's not the Queen of Heaven. You know, the rest of that prayer says, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the time of our death. Mary can't pray for you at the time of your death. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that very clear. Most Catholics don't know what the assumption is. You all know what that is? That's a doctrine that Mary never died. She was assumed into heaven. Guess what year that was made a doctrine? 1950. Okay? So it's not in the Bible. It's not true. Mary is not to be venerated. She's not a co-redemptrix. She's not the queen of heaven. You know what she's rejoicing at? And this is what Catholics can learn from Protestants. She's rejoicing at what you rejoiced at one time, that salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest any of us would boast. God put a song in my heart at 21 years old when I realized I could be saved by grace. And you should too. Now, it goes on and she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation, for he has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, and he has put down the mighty from their thrones. Now, you can't get this this morning, because you're Western, and you've read it too many times. But if you heard this when Mary said it, this is revolution talk. The idea of someone Casting down thrones is not something you said in this part of the world at this time. There was a triangle of power in Mary's time, and it was Rome, it was Jerusalem, and it was the temple. Rome ruled the world, Caesars ruled Rome. Caesar's a title, it's like president or prime minister. The Caesar at this time is Octavian. He's given the name Augustus by the Roman Senate because he brought peace to the world, Pax Romana. Augustus, or the August, August one, means to be exalted. He was the first Caesar that was looked at as a god or the son of God. So when you were in Rome, you would get a pinch of incense, you put it on an altar or burn it, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. He makes Herod, another title, uh, ruler with jurisdiction over what we know as Israel today or Jerusalem. Now here's, here's all you need to know about Herod, okay? He called himself Herod the Great, Okay? He was only four foot ten, probably drove an F-150 for all we know. 
Um, but when you go to Israel, uh, most of what you'll see is what he left behind. Aqueduct at Caesarea, the theater at Caesarea. Uh, he, he built the temple or expanded it to one of the wonders of the world by trying to Romanize it with hundreds of columns, marble columns everywhere. He built the summer palace of Masada. He's also the one that had all the Jewish boys killed in Jerusalem. Even Caesar Augustus said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's dog than his son. That's how ruthless he was. And then the final pinnacle of power was the temple. It was the heart of Israel. It's, it's where God said he would put his name. By Jesus' time, it had become corrupt. The high priests were politically appointed. It was full of aristocracy and heredity and corruption. And Luke is very intentional for us to understand early in his gospel that God will exalt the lowly and overlook the proud. And I want you to think about this for a minute because this is your faith. In the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So what did God do? He did something we would never do. He overlooked the halls and palaces of Rome and Jerusalem and even the temple that he had established. And he went to Nazareth and he found a 15-year-old girl to birth his son. Now, we would have done it another way, right? We would have went on monster.com, found somebody with a PhD, someone who graduated from the greatest schools. No, he chose a girl from Nazareth, and he didn't choose her just because she was lowly. See, sometimes we, we, we overthink things too much. We look at a verse like God, you know, God exalts the humble, or we say there's not many noble, not many wise. You know, Moses was wise. He was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Raised in Pharaoh's house, he understood how to run complex organizations so that when he took a million people through the wilderness, he understood what he was doing. So what does God do with someone like Moses? He, he humbles him, takes him through the backside of the desert, makes him a shepherd, makes him understand the voice of God. Mary was chosen for a reason. We'll look at that in a few minutes, but I want to say something about Nazareth. There's 50 towns in the Galilee. Nazareth almost never named in secular literature or biblical literature because there was nothing really there. It was a stop between Tyre and Sidon. And so it was a stop for businessmen and soldiers. You can imagine the activity went on there. It was poor. It was about 70 miles uh, from Jerusalem. All you need to know about it is when Nathaniel's told that the Messiah has come from Nazareth, he said, can anything be good coming from Nazareth? So that was his viewpoint. But it's Luke's gospel that God's love for all people is evident, undeserving people. Luke's gospel crosses every social and racial border. It gives prominence to women, outcasts, widows and sinners. More widows are named by name here in Luke than any other gospel. Elizabeth, Mary, Anna appear in Luke chapter 1 and 2. Prominent women are in the genealogy of not only Matthew but Luke. One of the Christmas songs that I love is Gloria in Excelsis Deo. You all know that? Like, oh, you know, I love to sing it every year. But one year I thought, what is Excelsis Deo? I, I don't know what that means. So I looked it up. It means glory to God in the highest. But as we open Luke's gospel, there's glory to God among the lowest. Look what Mary goes on to say. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. 
He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And this he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. We get so jealous of people that have this world's goods and these people are singing from their heart because there's something that can't be bought. There's something special. Because there's glory to God in the highest, but there's glory to God among the lowest. Mary here in verse 53 says he's blessed to serve in Israel, which is remarkable because she didn't live in Israel. She lived in Palestine. Look at your Bible maps. The Romans renamed the area Palestine because the Philistines were their arch enemies. And this was like a slur at the Jews to call the area Palestine. It was occupied territory. And if you ever doubt that God would hang around the lowest, think about Jesus. He was born in a feed trough. He was born to a woman who was pregnant before she was married. He was a Palestinian. He was an African refugee. Remember when Herod would kill the baby boys, they had to flee to Egypt, and the scripture says, out of Egypt I will call my son. For those of you who are geographically challenged, Egypt is in Africa. He was poor. The birds birds have their nests, foxes have their holes. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. But ministers drive around in Mercedes and Bentleys, I don't know why. He was olive-skinned. He died for a crime he never committed. He lived in occupied territory. Who could not relate to this man? Who was any lower than this man? Can you imagine if we preached this gospel, the real gospel, to people around the world? They would follow Jesus in droves. But see, today they think he's Western. They think he's American. They think he's, you know, they think he's Italian by all the pictures they've seen. You know? Mary said he's helped to serve in Israel. She doesn't believe she lives in Palestine. Because she holds in heart the, the vision of Abraham. That God would make of them a great nation. That God would bring and deliver Isaac and Jacob. She mentions Abraham here. Remember what Jesus said in his ministry? He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Isn't that amazing? See, Abraham knew Jesus was coming. David knew he was coming. They didn't know how he was coming. They knew he was coming. But to a 15-year-old girl, you will call his name Jesus. Yeshua means salvation. He will deliver the world from its sins. Hats off to Mary for calling the land Israel. Hats off to every scholar since that time. For 1948 years, when they wrote books and they wrote about prophecy, they said Israel must be in the land. You see, because for 1948 years, the land was called Palestine. And people said, you know what? We have to take all these scriptures about Jesus coming for the church and we have to, and, 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 and the Jewish theology, and we have to replace Israel with the church because Israel's never coming back. Until 1948. Some of you are alive. The greatest miracle in human history. No nation has ever come out of existence, back into existence. Not only do they come back into existence, they speak Hebrew, which the Bible prophesied. Mary realizes that. His servant, Israel. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich, he sent away empty. Uh, I don't think the Magnificat was a one-time song. 
I think she put Jesus on her lap. I think the whole time he was being born, Mary, not only this song, but the richness of what she understood of the scriptures, relayed this to her son. And when Jesus starts his ministry in that synagogue, he reads that wonderful verse about opening blind eyes and deaf ears and, and, and coming to the outcast. And he says, this day it's fulfilled in your hearing. And then the greatest sermon ever preached, he starts with the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the hungry. And you can pull all of his teaching from this prophetic utterance from a 15-year-old girl in Nazareth. It formed the vision of his life It formed the vision of his ministry and his mission. Mary's song, profound, wonderful, amazing. But I believe the Bible tells us that we all have a song. There's something deep in every one of us longing to come out. So the question I want to leave you with all of December, not just today, is what is your song? What's beating in your heart? What gets you up in the morning? It doesn't have to be grand. You know, for Martin Luther King, it was that his children be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. That's what got Martin Luther King up. That was his song. Sarah Fraser's song was to help poor people in the Bronx who are powerless and don't have a seat at the table. When God told her to go down and sit with, you know, to rent a house in the most dangerous, war-torn area of New York City, no one told her she'd be on Oprah Magazine one day. But she said, let it be done according to your word. Everybody has a song. Everybody has something in them longing to come out. And man, when it does, we sing and we rejoice because God put us here for a reason, and when we're done, he's going to take us away. You know, life's not about trying to live as long as you can. I don't want to be around as long as I can. Now, I'll probably change that the older I get, because this is all I know. But I'm looking for a far grander place, and I know you are too. So I think we should take this month of December and we should ponder these songs. We should look at the faith of ordinary people who became extraordinary not because of who they were but because of the great God who allowed them to be part of the story. John and Laura are going to sing a song about Mary. Uh, I hope it blesses your heart. When they're done, John will dismiss you.